Good morning. Um, as Jake said, our Bible in today is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Uh, unsurprisingly, it comes after 1 Corinthians and uh, before Galatians, about halfway through uh, the New Testament. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Acacia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same suffering that we endure. And I hope for you is firm, because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you also will share in the comfort. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed, beyond our strength, so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a terrible death, and he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again while you join in helping us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. Thanks, Luke. Welcome all. Great to have you along. Uh, Youth Church, that's your cue to head out. If you're ready to go with, who's taking you today? Oh, Nick and Simon are the winners. Uh, If you're new or visiting today, really lovely to have you along. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. As Jake mentioned, we're in a new series. Uh, We've moved on from Exodus. We're in 2 Corinthians. Now, just a really quick thing to actually mention, and it's a helpful thing to know. Uh, We quite deliberately preach through books of the Bible and throughout the course of a year we want to preach through the whole counsel of God. So you'll notice that we go from something like a historical narrative set in the time of Moses to an, an epistle or a letter by the, from the pen of Paul and that's not by accident, it's actually to help us hear all of God's word through all of God's people through all of time um, because as we, as we uh, come to understand what the Bible is, it's God's timeless word through a timely people in space. Uh, and, it re- and we receive it in the same sort of fashion. So let's pray and ask that God would help us. This series is titled Power in Weakness, and, and we'll see time and time again that it being a very much a, re- a repeated theme as Paul sort of comes to recognise his own weakness and through it aware of God's power. So how about we, um, we pray and ask God to help us as we kick off this little journey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. Uh, we thank you that through the pen of Paul, first delivered to the church in Corinth, but equally to us. We thank you for this letter that bears your authority, that it bears your correction, that bears your encouragement. And we ask now that you'd help us to read and understand and apply it to our lives, that we might be strengthened by your spirit through Jesus to the glory of your name. And it's in his name we pray it. Amen. Now I want to start by asking a bit of a personal reflection question. When times are tough, when the chips are down, where or what do you turn to for comfort? All right, it's it's pretty an obvious question to ask after you've read this uh, read this 
this uh, opening section, I mean, no less than nine times does Paul use the word comfort there as he addresses this letter to the Corinthian church. It's a central, uncontroversially a central idea in this section of scripture. But let me ask you to think personally, when things aren't going well, where or to what do you naturally turn for comfort? In fact, I'll make it even easier for you as you reflect. And if you're honest or brave, you can sort of give me the nod of a, you know, acknowledgement if this fits you, you know, like you're betting at an auction, sort of, you know, that sort of idea. Let me give you a couple of broad brushstroke ideas. Are you the comfort eater? The person who turns to the block of chocolate or a bucket of the colonel's finest to find solace when you're sad? Any comfort eaters out there? Or maybe you're the escape artist. The one who uses you know, social media and the endless, aimless scrolling through videos, one after the other. That was rubbish. That was more rubbish. Why am I keeping on going? Or even computer games to sort of help you step out of all your life and into another. Are you the escape artist? Maybe escape artistry doesn't come to you in the form of uh, devices. Maybe it comes to you in the form of chemicals, drugs, alcohol. Something to dampen the pain of the present to transform you into a different space. Is that your coping mechanism? The escape artist? Or maybe you're the pampered pooch. The one who uses retail therapy as the preferred treatment in times of trial. Whether it be the new gadget or toy, most likely fishing or shooting related I'm imagining. Or maybe a little self-indulgence, you know, the mani-pedi massage combination. I don't know what any of those things mean, Tiana told me. (laughs) Or do you look for comfort in human relationships and specifically, you know, through physical touch? In the embrace of another, tragically sometimes even any other will do. Are you on that spectrum of the relational vampire who seeks to soothe your ills by sucking up the physical company of others, be it legitimately healthy good or not so good, as yourself when you're suffering. Maybe you've got a different approach to any of these. I don't know. There's a different mechanism altogether. Regardless, I'm sure you'll resonate with some or all of those well-worn options for comfort-seeking because they're everywhere and they're in our lives too. And so it is a good place to start uh, this, this letter, reflecting on where do we find comfort? Where do we look for comfort? Because Paul's got a lot to say to, about comfort in, in the opening of his letter. And nowhere does he mention comfort eating or escapism or self-indulgence or physical touch as the key to real lasting comfort. Rather, did you notice that from the very get-go, he anchors the notion of real and lasting comfort in one space exclusively. Did you notice it there? Have a look at it again in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3. He says, Praise to the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Paul pins lasting, genuine comfort in the one space, and it's on God alone through Christ. It's a huge thing that he wants to talk to. But before we actually start to look at what Paul means by this, what he's actually trying to uh, challenge and correct in the Corinthian church, I want us to first understand why Paul starts his letter this way. And I want to do that by sort of giving you a quick whiz-bang tour through uh, Paul's background and relationship to the Corinthian Christians, the Corinthian church. Now, I've got a couple of slides here. They didn't transfer very well on the screen. I didn't make them big enough, so bear with me, please. 
But basically, we get a bit of an idea into Paul's background with the Corinthian church from a couple of spaces in the Bible. 1 Corinthians, an earlier letter that he wrote, and the book of Acts, which Luke writes uh, to record some of Paul's missionary journeys. And what we, what we learn there is that the city of Corinth, in the time that Paul is dealing with them, it's a real melting pot of, of identities and cultures. It's a cosmopolitan city. You know, think of a modern-day Bangkok or a Kuala Lumpur or something like that. In fact, I was reading in a commentary the other day uh, by Gary Miller. He, he explained uh, Corinth, ancient Near Eastern Corinth, as like a hybrid sort of animal. You know, it was the, the city with a Roman face and a Greek heart and a large Jewish appendix and a deeply ingrained universal desire to impress, a real hybrid of a beast. And we learn from Acts 18, in fact, from verses 1 through to 18, that Paul went to Corinth and there he preached the gospel and people got converted. People come to see and understand and the Lordship of Jesus, become their, he become their Lord too. In fact, so successful, if you like, was these, his preaching there that the whole church was planted somewhere around about that sort of 51, 52 AD. It caused quite a stir in the city. You can read about it in Acts. And Paul stuck around for some time before leaving. And in fact, we, we learned that he left to keep gospeling elsewhere. But not long after he leaves, he hears that things have got bad in Corinth. And he writes them a letter. It's not a letter that we have anymore. In fact, he references that letter in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. He hears that things aren't going well, so he writes them a letter. We know that doesn't go well, so he writes them a longer letter. That's the one that we call 1 Corinthians. It's actually 2 Corinthians, but don't worry about that. He writes that somewhere around about that 53 AD. It's a longer letter this time. And then he hears from Timothy that things are still going no good in the church in Corinth. So he makes a painful visit to them. We'll see this reference next week in 2 Corinthians 2.1. So he's written two letters. He's made a painful visit after having planted that church some years before. But things are still not going well. In fact, he hears from Titus. He sends him with another letter, another letter we don't have. He refers to that in 2 Corinthians 2, 4. And it must have got a better reception because now, in around about the year, somewhere 54, 55 AD, he writes what we call 2 Corinthians, 4 Corinthians, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians, and he's preparing them for another visit. And he starts off talking about comfort. Why? tell you why because things are decidedly uncomfortable at this point between the two parties between Paul and the Corinthians in fact as we work through this letter we'll continually encounter examples of some of the awkward issues between Paul and the Corinthian Christians they don't think he's very impressive he said some hard things about their whole conduct as Christians and they haven't really liked that in fact they don't rate him as a preacher They've got some better guys to listen to now. Guys who have been formally trained in the art of rhetoric. Guys who look impressive and preach a gospel that is smoother and easier on the listener than Paul. Paul will refer to them sarcastically in sort of chapters 11 and 12 as the super apostles. It's not a compliment. And all these things have made relating between Paul and the Corinthians very uncomfortable. In fact, it seems like the Corinthians are distancing self from Paul and they have been for some year. So why does he persist with them? Why does he go to the effort of writing several letters and even making painful visits if they're growing cold to Paul? Why does he keep sticking his neck out there again? Why not just cut them loose? I mean, have you ever sort of felt like that in a relationship? 
in a painful relationship where it feels like you're just banging your head against a brick wall. And to continue in it is just to prolong your personal pain and difficulty and discomfort. Have you, have you experienced that before? That's where Paul's at. This is Paul, where's Paul's at with the, the church in Corinth? So why doesn't he just cut them loose? Why doesn't he just let them alone in their rejection of him and focus your attention on the more positive relationships in life? That's often the advice we give and get. I'll tell you why Paul doesn't. It's because what's happening here is a gospel issue. And by that I mean the salvation of the Corinthian church is on the line. Paul knows that for the Corinthians to reject him is to reject the gospel that he preached, is to reject Jesus, the subject of that gospel, is to reject God, the author of that gospel of salvation. The stakes are high and Paul is not prepared just to cut and run. In fact, we'll hear Paul say these types of things at several points through the letter. A few examples will flick up on the screen really quickly. We'll come through to those in due course through our series. But have a look at this as it flicks up on the screen. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20, as he speaks to them, he says, We are therefore Christ's ambassador, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You see the problem he's got here with them? Or in chapter 6, verse 1, as God's co-workers, he says to them, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. That is, don't have received his grace to no effect. Or in 6.14, he says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. What does righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light and darkness have? Can you see the way that Paul is talking here? underlines that there is a genuine, legitimate concern that the Corinthian church who have started strong have fallen into all sorts of issues and wrong beliefs and God-dishonouring practices that are undermining and denying the foundation of the gospel of Christ on which they were planted. In fact, it'll get so large that he'll lay this charge at them as he winds out his letter. Here's his parting challenge to them as he prepares them for his next visit. Chapter 13, verse 5, he says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Do you get the sense of how serious Paul's concern for the Corinthian church is now? It's an ultimate concern. It doesn't get any more serious. So despite the fact that it's been decidedly difficult, personally uncomfortable for Paul, he hangs it out there again because out of a God-given love for them, he's not prepared to let them walk or be led away unchallenged from Jesus. Sorry, away from Jesus unchallenged. Makes a huge difference, the word order there, doesn't it? He's not willing to uh, prepared for them to walk or be led away from Jesus unchallenged, no matter how personally painful or uncomfortable it may be. And so he addresses the issue of comfort and he presents the challenge to what this means in the economy of God's plan for them right from the get-go. Now, straight away, there's another question or a challenge here that we more ought not miss applying to ourselves as we start this letter. And it's whether you've been a Christian for a little time or a long time. It's, it's that question right there. Don't miss the, the, the question of testing yourself often to ensure that you are living out the reality of Christ in you, as Paul puts it in chapter 13, 5. That your faith in Jesus remains the sure foundation on which you stand. And because of this, 
that your life is bearing the evidence of the fruit in like kind. It's the only wise and sensible thing to do. Don't just bob along. And if in the process of reflecting on your faith in Christ, on the evidence of your life that bears, is bared out in its fruit, if you find that, well, actually, I'm not, then be reconciled to God through Jesus. That's Paul's words. Repent, seek his forgiveness, assistance, and assurance. It's the only way to be saved. It's by sticking with Jesus. Because you don't want to be like the Titanic in terms of your Christian faith. That's Paul's overarching concern here for the Corinthians as he starts, even though he didn't have the illustration yet. Just like the Titanic, it looked good out of the blocks as it set sail from the wharf in Ireland. The Titanic looked strong, unsinkable even. Only to be proven itself shipwrecked at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean just four days later. Paul does not want that to be the Corinthians story in terms of their Christianity. I don't want it to be anyone his story of Christianity, strong off the wharf, charging out of the harbour, only to be sunk at the bottom of of, of the ocean. So keep this in mind, friends, as we read through 2 Corinthians. In fact, let me channel a little bit more of Paul when he says in 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life and doctrine carefully, he says to Timothy, persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Your life and doctrine, what you believe and how you live, watch that carefully. It's serious stuff, isn't it? It's a serious way to start a, a, a sermon series. Maybe it's a little heavy, you might think, even a little bit uncomfortable, which is the point. In fact, if you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable at the moment, that's by design, because the Paul, just as the, the opening line of Paul's letter is to challenge and correct the Corinthians about comfort, so it should be to us. About the very notion of comfort. This is one of the very issues that they are dangerously wrong about. It appears to be one of the issues that the super apostles, those smooth-talking false preachers, seem to have misled the Corinthian church on. And so I want to spend the time now turning to Paul's correction to the Corinthian idea of comfort. There's three points there. Hopefully you've got them on your outline. Have a look. There's three points on a work through from this first 11 verses. And the first is this, that God is the God of all comfort. That doesn't mean what the Corinthian church think it means. It may not mean what you think it means either. God is the God of all comfort, not the God of no troubles. Let's notice where, that, where, where he begins to unpack this for us. In fact, let's read 1 Corinthians 3, to 4, 8, 3 and 4 again. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4 again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Now notice straight away here that Paul refers to two distinctive character traits of God there. The father of compassion, that is like an ultimate caring parent, he really does care. And he's the God of all comfort. But notice what it means when Paul said he's the God of all comfort. Notice what it means for him to be the God of all comfort. It means that he comforts people in any trouble. And that word comfort there, uh, it can equally, it's a Greek word, equally could be encouraged, uh, sorry, translated as sort of encourage or strengthen. Even when that's a boot up the backside type of encouragement, that can be encompassed in that. But he, he comforts 
people, his people in any trouble. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant equally in two different ways. It's significant in what it does say and what it doesn't say. That is, God comforts his people in any trouble, assuming that God's people will find themselves in forms of trouble where they will require comfort. That's what he does say. And it also, in what it doesn't say, do you notice that it's God is the source of comfort in trouble, not the immediate source of relief out of trouble. That's not what he says. What I mean by that is Paul doesn't say, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of no troubles, the God of immediate, instantaneous relief. doesn't say that. That's a huge point. That's a significant thing, did you realize? The Christian, the Corinthians rather, were slow on this point and many branches of modern Christianity are equally dim on this front. Paul points out the God of comfort in that God's comfort meets God's people in their troubles and afflictions in order to help them endure through troubles and afflictions. God is not the genie who transports his peoples out of troubles and afflictions. Paul doesn't exhort the Corinthians to see God as the God of financial freedom, the God of perfect health, the God of smooth relationships, the God of easy life. Though if you look at the title of many supposed Christian books by, or supposed Christian sermons by supposed Christian preachers, you could be almost excused for being confused on those issues. You know, just, do a casual church, just do a casual perusal through the, uh, some of the bestsellers of popular Christian bookshops. And genuinely, I mean, I, I, it, it, it makes me quite sick <laughs> when you see how distorted the view is and how distorted it is from the grander truth that Paul is making here. God is not the God of no troubles. God is the one who works in his people to comfort and strengthen and encourage them through troubles and sufferings, be they financial, relational, physical, mental, whatever. Not grant them a free pass from troubles and sufferings. And the reason for this is that in the hands of a loving, compassionate father, even your troubles and your suffering are for your good. Now, we'll get to that. That's the second point. Hold that thought. But before we move there, I just really want to make sure that you've squared that first point in your head already. That the comfort God gives is often a package deal with troubles and sufferings. Have you come to terms with that yet? It's important that you do. It's not just important if you are presently experiencing trouble or suffering, but it's even more important that you do it before you experience trouble and suffering because in a fallen world, awaiting the restorations of the new heaven and the new earth, you will endure suffering and trouble of various kinds. You will need to. I'm not a prophet, I don't have a crystal ball, but you can take that to the bank. You will need to endure suffering and troubles of various kinds in a broken world awaiting renewal, either as a direct result of your own sin and stupidity or the direct result of others' sin and stupidity against you, even at times through occasions where you can't pinpoint the direct causal link to your sin or others. But you will face times of trouble and suffering. And during those moments, what will carry you through? A monster peanut butter cup sundae? Another gin and tonic? 
The 3D ultimate massage chair, I am tempted to go there. <laughs> Maybe actually all three at once. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> or will you find the comfort and the strength to endure in the only places to be found? It's in God through Christ. And if I'm laboring this point, then understand I'm laboring it from a very personal point of view. In fact, I heard through a Christian friend recently of another Christian friend who attends a church who, um, look, it's, and I, I don't say this to be um, snobby or nasty, but for a long time I've been concerned that this church preaches a shallow or an anemic gospel that is really free from the reality of sufferings in life and therefore free of the comfort and the strength that God provides through suffering. And his wife has not been long diagnosed with breast cancer. And he's been a Christian in that church for two decades. And his statement through my friend was as amazing as it was devastating when he said, we've never been prepared for this. What? We've never been prepared for how to think and feel and live through this as Christians facing life-threatening illness and still knowing how to hold on to God's goodness and faithfulness and favour. We don't know how to do that. We've not been prepared for this. And let me assure you, it's not because God's word is, a void, is void of words to prepare him for such realities. It's because there's a habit there of people teaching the Bible like an airbrushed version of the Facebook feed. Only showing the best bits and the prettiest pictures, not the warts and all and glorious reality of living as hope-filled Christians in a fallen world where God himself is the comforter and the consolator who grows you through suffering and troubles. Don't miss that, friends. In fact, are you prepared for such a time as that? And through God's word, through the scriptures, are you aware of the troubles that may lay ahead? And through the same word, the same scriptures, are you prepared to face them in the strength and assurance of God through Jesus? That's biblical Christianity. Which actually leads very nicely into the second point, you'll notice, because the obvious question here that you may already be asking, that my friend seems to be asking without asking it, the question that we need to know the answer to is, if God is truly the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, then why does he allow, ordain, even intend for his people to suffer trouble and affliction? And the stunning answer is here for us in the text. It's that in God's intentions for his people, even trouble is for your good. Did you hear that? Did you see that even suffering and affliction should be seen and understood as a gift from God when it rightly causes you to deepen your trust and dependence on him? There's an important distinction I just made there. Did you notice? Paul is not a sadomasochist. He's not saying suffering is good in, in and of itself. But rather, if through suffering you are brought into a clearer, deeper, richer, realer experience of God's goodness and faithfulness to you despite your suffering, that is one of the greatest gifts of all. In fact, look at this with me in the text. See how we see it here. Look at, uh, read 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired 
of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Do you hear that? Paul is not playing silly here. It's not as if Paul was unacquainted with genuine suffering. He's not, as I've said before, writing from an ivory tower. In fact, later on in chapter 11, we'll get him, he'll give a, a, a fuller and yet still incomplete account of some of the troubles he's experienced. Often for the mere fact that he's a Christian who preaches the gospel, he experiences them. He'll talk of beatings and arrests, of shipwrecks and threats. He'll talk about his life being endangered from many different fronts. And he clearly wasn't loving it. This is clearly very difficult to endure. In fact, so much so that did you notice in, in, in verse 8 there? That at times he despaired of life itself? That's not a frivolous comment. That's not a trifling matter. That's as low as it gets. Have you ever felt like that? Can you identify with Paul? And and I want to draw another very careful distinction here. Paul is not championing... He's not championing suicidal uh, ideation. He's not relishing in this feeling or flirting with the idea of taking his own life as though it would be a reasonable option to end his troubles. Rather, he's expressing an understanding of being so low and feeling so out of control and so overwhelmed by his circumstances that his natural coping mechanisms are failing him. He feels very closely and acutely the looming reality of death. Have you been there? It may not have been through direct persecution for being a Christian like Paul, but have you ever been in that space mentally and emotionally and spiritually where your coping mechanisms feel ready to topple over? Maybe it's not that you actively want to die necessarily, though it may manifest itself this way, But when you don't want to live anymore, at the very least, no matter how you try to shake it off, you begin to despair of life itself. Have you been there? I've been there. Some of of you will know this story. My final year of Bible college was the year that I blew a head gasket. That's my favourite euphemism for saying that I experienced a mercifully short season of dread and despair and failure and frailty that I had no concept existed. Where it wasn't so much that I wanted to die actively, but I just described it as, I just want to disappear. I just want to sort of crawl into a ball in the corner and evaporate. I just, I just don't want to be here. Now, the presenting circumstances were very different from Paul, and they might be very different from you, but this is the kind of experience that Paul is describing here. This is an experience that some of you I know have felt likewise. I just want to tap out. So how can that be for your good? How can that be the work of the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort? It doesn't seem to compute until you read the second half of verse 9. Look at the second half of verse 9. But this happened that we may not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, do you hear that? And do you understand that? And do you yet believe that? How can troubles and suffering of a Christian be good for them? I'll tell you when. When they break you free from any nonsense notion that you're enough. 
when trouble smashed down, the false belief that you're in control, when affliction refuses you to refuses to allow you to believe for a moment longer that your destiny is in your own hands, or that you can save yourself, free yourself, satisfy yourself. Suffering and afflictions are God's gift to his people to draw them desperately close. To radically alter the way they see everything. It is a perspective transformation that is necessary, painfully necessary. That even when life is despairing, that you can find a hope, a Christian hope that is rooted in the God who raises the dead. See, that's the assurance of the, of the Christian through Jesus. That just as Christ was raised to new life, those who trust in him will likewise see life and hope and comfort beyond death through God who raises the dead. In fact, look at how Paul describes this hope and assurance. So he describes it both as a past and a future certainty. Look at verse 10. He says, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril, past tense. That is, in Jesus' death, Christians have already been saved from the consequences of sin. We have been delivered. And then he continues, and he will deliver us again. That's a future tense. That is, through the resurrection of Jesus, we have a guarantee and a securement of a full and final restoration to life for the Christian. A full and final restoration that no past, present or future circumstance can take away. Friends, do you know that hope? Presently secured, future-proofed in Jesus. Because if you do, that will flip your understanding of life struggles and trials and troubles upside down. That regardless of the nature of the troubles you experience from the everyday to the extreme, the car won't start, the baby won't stop crying, my work pressure is mounting, my loneliness remains, my body is breaking, I'm failing in everything. My friends are dying, the problems of the world are only worsening. Regardless of the nature of the troubles you're experiencing, from the everyday to the extreme, they are a gift of God for your good if through them he draws you nearer to, relate, to reach and rely on his strength and comfort, which is inexhaustible. Now let me ask, is that you? Is that your attitude in maybe present difficulties, whatever they are? A reflex drawing closer to God through Christ? of seeking his comfort and his strength to endure you and grow you through that hardship, to galvanize both your present assurance and your future hope in Christ. Is that you? It should be. It should be me. But it isn't often so quickly. Which brings us to the third and final point. It's because it isn't my natural reaction so often that I need you. It's because it isn't your natural reaction so often that you need me. Have a look at that third point there in your outline. Your suffering is good for others when you point them to Jesus through it. Where do we see this in the text? Have a look at verses 4 to 7. It's that whole section that repeats comfort a dozen times until you can't actually even say the word comfort anymore. You know that? Comfort, comfort, comfort. What's that word again? I can't say it. Did you pick up the flow of the logic here, though, when Luke read it out? For us, it's a little tricky, but let's have a look at it again. Let's read it there, 4 to 7. 
So it's praise be to the God and Father of our, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm. Because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. Now, I just want you to pick up the flavor here at the very least. You notice the other person-centered focus of Paul, even as he talks and reflects on his own troubles and strife. Actually, more than that, did you notice it even starts with a praise to God for this? That's distinctly Christian. <laughs> I don't know of any other system or religious religion that sort of says, praise God for this trouble and strife. But Paul is able to praise God in his troubles because he knows that the supernatural comfort he receives from God through the troubles and the strife is not just personally necessary for him, but will be profitable in the future to assist him in comforting others facing similar troubles. That's the beauty of Christian brotherhood and sisterhood, of being a family together. And again, I want to draw a distinction here. I don't just mean being able to identify with people who are going through similar hard experiences. You know, I'm not just talking about here the ability to empathise in the oncology ward with another person going through the same treatment. Don't get me wrong, there's some comfort there. There is some genuine support in those kinds of shared experiences. Some of you will know this. Just the shared experience of knowing you're not alone, knowing that someone else genuinely understands the pain, that can be and will be encouraging and comforting, no doubt. But it's not the kind of comfort that Paul is speaking of here. He's speaking of the comfort that comes from a Christian brother or sister who suffers well. Not just with their own eyes fixed on Jesus, but who somehow manages to shift your eyes to fix them on Jesus. Because even in their suffering, your good and your comfort and your salvation is being divinely ministered to you through them. This is what Paul means when he says, if we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same suffering. Paul's focus, even in the discomfort of the current poor relational status that he experiences with the Corinthians, was focused on their salvation. Because his anchor was, sorry, his hope was anchored in the comfort and the consolation provided to him by Jesus and his confidence for them was the same. Let me illustrate that because it is chunky, I understand that. But let me see, have you experienced this at times where Christian brothers and sisters are having the hardest time of life and end up being the most encouraging witness by virtue of God's work in and on and through them to you? Where you go over to sit and pray and minister to a brother or a sister in dire straits and they end up ministering to you in a way that strengthens your faith and grows your praise and amazement of God. I mean, I can think of stacks of examples from people from our own church family who have ministered to me through their pain and their grief and their suffering. And it wasn't so much them, but it was the power and the comfort of God to them overflowing to the point where it deepened my own wonder at God's goodness. 
It's difficult to give examples of this because they often occur at the most difficult, painful times of life. So I'm not going to name people and, ex and examples specifically, but let me give you a flavour generally. See, I've sat with people who have dealt with grief of betrayal far beyond anything I've had to encounter personally or the death of a spouse or the infidelity of a, a wife or a husband. Been blown away by the evidence of God's power and comfort working through them, assisting them to grieve because that's right, but without losing hope and then encouraging me to do the same? Or adopting such a stance of gracious forgiveness towards people who have wronged them, even when there was no remorse or repentance forthcoming from the perpetrator? I remember speaking to a man once, and I can use this because he's not from our church family. He'd just become a Christian, just, I can't remember if it was a matter of weeks before his wife left him for another man. And I remember being on the phone to him, and he was hurting, and I remember thinking, this is the lowest point I've ever seen him, heard him, mentally, physically, emotionally, and yet spiritually he was thriving. Even to the point that through his tears and his pain, he wanted to make sure that I had read Psalm 19. <laughs> the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hand. Tim, have you read that? This sucks. Have you read that? I sat and prayed with Christians who are dying well before their time, body racked with pain, but with not just a calm confidence, but yet a still burning passion to share Jesus with those who visited them because their hope was firm, because God by his spirit had put it on their hearts, not just to honour him in their life, but to honour him even in their death to live well, to die well. It's those kinds of examples and witnesses that God uses to put steel in your spine, to keep trusting him. It's the kind of comfort that comes through suffering to the one who knows the God of all comfort. So where do we land this, friends? Let me ask you again then. Where do you look for genuine comfort, strength and encouragement to help you endure the inevitable difficulties of this world? before the cosmic renewal of all things. In fact, let me change that question slightly in light of God's word to us here this morning. Where will you find genuine comfort and strength and encouragement? Because if you're looking anywhere other than God through Jesus, you're looking in the wrong direction. God alone is the God of all comfort through troubles. Your troubles are good for you when they draw you closer in dependence on God through Christ. Your troubles are good for others when you point them to Jesus through it. Friends, our whole series in 2 Corinthians is going to be about seeing and experiencing God's power through his spirit because of Jesus, which meets us in our weakness. I hope that you stick around for the whole journey. Let's pray as we finish up. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your comfort we thank you for the comfort that is on offer through your spirit because of what christ has done for us and we ask that you would change us strengthen us deepen us through times of trouble and affliction change so change our perspective that we would not so much pray relieve me from but strengthen me to endure whatever season we would get from your hand so that we might draw closer to you, so that we might point others to you, 
so that we might see you glorified as you deserve. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.